I interviewed 25 living creative greats. These are Oscar winners, Tony Award winners, billionaires, Michelin star chefs, very eclectic set of folks. And one of the things I found that was so interesting was that to a person, they were all huge consumers of their craft. Welcome to Creative Elements, a show where we talk to your favorite creators and learn what it takes to make a living from your art and creativity. I'm your host, Jay Klaus. Let's start the show. Hello, my friend. Welcome back to another episode of Creative Elements. You know, there's actually a blog post that I wrote back in 2015 titled, Can We Stop Using Creative as a Noun? It's no longer published because I'm so embarrassed by it. It was basically a rant from an insecure version of myself saying that the term creative as a noun creates an exclusive group of people and implicitly says that not all people are creative. I know now that when I wrote that, I was feeling angry and insecure that I wasn't creative myself. And there was part of me that desperately wanted to be. Longtime listeners of this show may recall episode number 39 when I spoke with my coach, Chris McAllister. It was working with Chris in 2017 that finally helped me to identify that limiting belief and to squash it. Here's a short clip from that episode. We worked through, I think it was week two, where we identify one of the lies that you're telling yourself. Mm -hmm. And at the same time that I was identifying the lie that I was telling myself, I came across the preview, the trailer for that Steve Martin masterclass on comedy. (laughs) And it like was the perfect timing, fundamentally changed my life. I'll try to find the audio clip. Because he basically said, everything that happens to you is material. Like, you can use that. I never actually thought I was funny. You may think, I don't have any talent. I guarantee you, I had no talent. None. Remember, you are a thought machine. Everything you see, hear, experience is usable. Oh, what? Oh. Whatever makes you unique as a performer, do it and know that there's room for you. Hey, welcome to Steve Martin's Masterclass. And that was so empowering because the lie I was telling myself was, I'm not creative, I can't go out on my own because I don't have creative ideas. Around that same time, sometime in 2018, I started talking about this change in my perspective and I started to write about how I unblocked my own creativity. And one of my friends asked me, have you read The Creative Curve by Alan Gannett? The Creative Curve is a book that shows how the creative process can be learned by anyone. Alan interviewed everyone from billionaires to neuroscientists and developed four steps backed by science that you can follow to achieve creative success. I hadn't read it, but it put the book and the author, Alan Gannett, onto my radar. Fast forward to March of this year, and I was tagged on Twitter by a tweet from Ali Merritt saying, Okay, Jay Klaus and Alan, do you two hang out? Because you should. Every time I read something from either of you, I feel smarter, more empathetic, and more connected to my fellow humans. Please connect and do a podcast or something together. Sunshine Levin and I need this. So thanks to Allie and Sunshine, Alan and I connected on Twitter, scheduled an interview, and the world has come full circle. I knew Alan had written The Creative Curve, but I didn't know about his story before that. In 2012, Alan started TrackMaven, a marketing analytics platform that large brands such as GE and the NBA and high-growth startups such as Dollar Shave Club and MailChimp have used to power data-driven creativity. 
And in October 2018, TrackMaven merged with Skyward, the leading content marketing platform. And around that same time is when Alan published The Creative Curve, which he says stemmed out of conversations he was having while running TrackMaven. One of the big things you do as CEO is you spend a lot of time talking to customers and prospects. And so I was having these conversations with marketers sort of from the get-go. And one of the things that was really evident was that there was a lot of insecurity and self-doubt in marketers. They would say things to me like, oh, you know, I'm just not that creative. And so I think that had started to rub me the wrong way. And I'm always someone who, when I get frustrated, I tend to say something. And so I think I was just a bit frustrated. And so this, this speech was in part sort of a way of dealing with that frustration in a way that I thought would help people and maybe unblock some of those thoughts, which I think are pretty destructive. This idea of, oh, I'm not so-and-so. I think once every anytime you start to, you know, in your identity, you say, I'm not something, I think that's pretty detrimental. The Creative Curve was published by Penguin Random House, which is a big publisher and a big deal for a first-time author. I had a very romantic process for my first book that was much, I would, you know, I, I'd be lying if I said it was like toiling. I, it was sort of a snowball of fortunate events. And don't worry, we talk about all of those fortunate events. In this episode, we talk about how Alan built TrackMaven into a multi-million dollar company in his 20s, the challenges that come from being ambitious, how to receive feedback, strengthening your innate creativity, and how all the inputs we receive better inform our creative work. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode as you listen. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram at jklaus, and you can find Alan at Alan on Twitter or Instagram. Tag us, let us know what you think, and now let's talk with Alan. I have been doing some version of technology-related stuff since maybe 2008, 2009, when I was in high school. I was starting online websites that were, I remember I started one that was sort of like a pop-punk review news source type thing. I was like, you know, a pop-punk kid from New Jersey. And then when I was in college was sort of the moment when social networks were really taking off in terms of cultural awareness. So the movie Social Network came out maybe in like 2011. At that point, big tech was like, could only do good things. Obviously, that's changed a lot since then. But that was a time when like big tech was amazing. And so I had been doing a bunch of very sort of digital marketing things and had developed a reputation locally as sort of like a guy who got digital marketing. And I ended up meeting someone who became sort of a mentor who was a SaaS entrepreneur. And he was like, hey, why don't you come be CMO of my SaaS company? And I was still in college and it was like a full-time job. And I was like, "Uh, okay, sure. That sounds great. Let's do it. And so I started taking all my classes at night and I took this full-time job as CMO of this, you know, 10 person venture backed SaaS company. And we also, me and the CEO of that company, he was really busy. He had a lot of things going on. He had this idea for doing a SaaS-focused startup accelerator. Back in 2012, this happens. Startup accelerators were not as prevalent as they were today. Like There was YC and Techstars, but now there's 700 of them. And so I think he was sort of like, you know, Alan's responsible and able to get things done. So he made me an equal partner in that, which was a lot of responsibility and really interesting, but I learned a ton. And that fund that did the accelerator actually became a pretty successful fund, which was cool to see. And so I sort of stumbled my way into SaaS. And I think what I liked about SaaS 
is that it's very, very logical. It's very practical. So software as a service, there's a lot of metrics. You can track everything. And maybe after a year or so of working for someone else, I also had this realization of I don't like working for other people. (laughs) And so I started my own company in part as a reaction to that and as part of just being like, I need to do my own thing. Let me back up to this moment where you were in college and offered a CMO position for a venture-backed company. You know, you mentioned you were doing this digital marketing type stuff on the side, this pop punk website. That doesn't necessarily say CMO material off the bat. I think you're being humble. So talk to me a little (laughs) bit more about what this person was seeing that he thought, I need to bring this person in at an executive level to help us with our marketing. Sure. So the pop punk website was in high school and college. I started a startup that was doing basically online marketing for colleges and universities. And we had built a bunch of different Facebook apps that students could use to connect with colleges. This was back when Facebook apps were these in-frame things that you could do anything with, You really wild. And we bootstrapped and we spent half of our month doing consulting, building websites for the people and half our month building the startup. And in doing that, It was just one of these things where we captured a pretty good amount of attention, I think, relative to our maybe intentions, where we didn't raise millions of dollars, we were scrapping by, but we were pretty good at getting attention and growing stuff. And so I think locally, people sort of knew, oh, okay, that guy, he like gets marketing, he gets PR, he gets he gets that stuff. And, you know, I think what happened with my mentor was, you know, he recruited me I think it was more of like, he wanted me to work with him. And I think I, I was like, well, I want to be CMO. (laughs) (laughs) And he was like, okay. That's great negotiation. So was there an insight or a moment where you realized that there was an opportunity with these Facebook apps? Because it sounds like, you know, you were, you were following your interests in starting things, but a lot of times people do that and it doesn't necessarily go anywhere or it's kind of derivative of stuff that already exists and it's not this new and exciting discovery, but it sounds like you hit kind of a magic time in the world of Facebook apps. Like that was a huge opportunity. Did you know that as you were discovering it? No, I mean, the real story is much more, I was interested in technology, but thought I wanted to become a lawyer. I went to school to get a political science degree and then I was like, shit, this is so slow. And everyone I know who's a lawyer is frustrated that they're a lawyer. Like, why am I doing this? And I think I realized that I'm very, very impatient. And so I was, you know, what could I do that would work well with a sense of impatience? And since tech was so sort of in the conversation and in the air at that point, I was like, well, I could do that. And I think I just you know, started doing things and, you know, the things, the startups and the ideas and the projects I was building, you know, all of them had, they had to be marketed, they had to be distributed. And so that's sort of how I sort of stumbled my way into digital marketing and Facebook marketing. And it happened to be a really good time to do that because people weren't very good at it yet. The markets were very inefficient. You know, you could get Facebook ads that were wildly successful for very small amounts of money because people didn't really spend money there yet in the same way they do today, where it's like a very professional operation. And so I think it was a bit of a right time, right place. You know, I would hope if the same situation happened today, I would have stumbled my way into TikTok ads and, you know, whatever would be the contemporary equivalent. But I don't know, like maybe it was just luck. Part of the reason why I'm sticking on this point so long is because (laughs) 
I'm jealous, honestly, because I think we were in college about the same time and I was going to parties and I was playing flip cup and, and, <laughs> and beer pong and stuff. And it sounds like you had a lot of ambition that was driving you towards trying new things and, and finding your way into this world very actively. And I was wondering what was driving you to do that. I would say definitely was ambitious, but I don't know if that's a good thing, like in a normative sense. So I think we sort of assume that ambition is a good thing. But if I look back, you know, I didn't have much sense of clarity of purpose. I wasn't, I was sort of moving forward because I thought I needed to move forward. I thought I needed to prove myself, you know, I mean, this is like a much longer answer, but, you know, I just generally think I had a chip on my shoulder for a large number of reasons. And I think there was this sort of subconscious drive to prove myself very, very quickly. And so I was, you know, I graduated college, even with a year of it being night school in two and a half years, I was moving incredibly quickly. I think mostly just because I wanted to sort of make a point to the world, but I don't know, looking now back, you know, with 10 or 11 years of hindsight, just turned 30. And I don't know, looking back, if that was a particularly good or healthy or correct, you know, and it's no way to know, but I don't know if that was the right decision. Like, I don't think those things made me particularly happier than other decisions would have made me, for example. Yeah. It's it's an interesting question. Like, what is the quote unquote right decision? You know, (laughs) I, I turn 30 here in like three months and I would say I'm in a place now where I'm trying to move forward with that same type of velocity and and prove myself and I have this ambition and we just bought a house, we moved in and I'm asking myself, Mazel. thank you. <laughs> and I'm asking myself, why am I not just making more time to enjoy this? Mm. You know, so I don't know that, you know, there's a right or wrong time to do that in your life. I do feel like I have some some grounding and some clarity around who I am, which is mm. nice, but part of me wishes that I was doing this type of pace even earlier as you mm-hmm. were, because as we'll get into here shortly, you know, it's, it's opened up some doors for you and, and a lot of new opportunities. The first of which sounds like, you know, you said you didn't have, you didn't love having a boss. So you started your own <laughs> company then. And you said part of that was in reaction, but that company with the benefit of hindsight, I know had some success. We're talking about track Maven here. What insight did you have to say, this is a company worth starting or did you get lucky and start a thing? Cause you want to start a thing and it happened to find success. I would say that I was doing in marketing work at the time, this is 2012, there was all these new digital platforms and I was spending a lot of time building reports, but it was really tedious and really time consuming. And so I had this idea where I was like, clearly there should be a piece of software here. And I think that matched time-wise with my sort of feeling of, I shouldn't be working for someone else. Like, I don't enjoy this. I need to do my own thing. And so again, I don't know if there was some like, deep sense of purpose with, you know, analytics, you know, I've always liked being very, I'm very much a logical systems thinker. I overthink things. I'm very data driven in decisions I make generally. And so I think there was some natural proclivities towards that, but I don't know, you know, if that was necessarily like my purpose in life. And so I definitely started it to some degree with a bit of, you know, I was just running and I was moving and I was going, I was moving really, really quickly. And it was an idea that I was like, clearly there's a need. I want to do a company. I want to do this. And so I started it and, you know, we had a bit of a right time, right place where, you know, we launched the product and we went in, in six months, we had a million dollars in, in annual recurring revenue. And then we went in the next year, we went from a million to three and a half. And the year after that, we went from three and a half to six and a half. So we, we were moving on a pace that was just 
crazy. Now, eventually, for reasons we can talk about, but that pace stopped. And we spent like years going from six and a half to like seven and a half. And so, but that initial sort of moment was, I think, a bit of had this idea, wanted to do a startup. It was right time, right place. It just sort of took off. And so all of a sudden I was, you know, 24 managing hundred people, not necessarily with the intention of doing that, you know, not with the, I didn't have the non-intention. Like I wanted to do something big, but I don't think I was like new. Okay. You know, three years from now, I'm going to have, you know, 105 people working for me. After a quick break, Alan and I talk about what it's like to be responsible for over 100 employees as a 24 year old. And later we dig into tapping into your creativity. So stick around. And we'll be right back. If you know me, you know how much I believe in memberships. My membership is the core of my business and earning an income directly from your audience is one of the most sustainable ways for you to become a professional creator too. So I want to tell you about today's sponsor, Uscreen. Uscreen is a beautiful all-in-one platform that helps content creators earn a living from their videos by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. You can host private live streams for your members, build an on-demand catalog of premium content, and Uscreen gives you a community hub to interact with your members too. They can access your community from their mobile phone, so your membership is right there in their pocket. With a Uscreen account, you get video hosting, an out-of-the-box website, full payment and subscription management, and plenty of third-party integrations too. And Uscreen makes it easy to get set up. You get access to powerful website themes that are fully brandable with no coding skills required. Uscreen will even provide a dedicated success manager for you. Just about anyone that wants to make money from their content can do it with Uscreen. It's perfect for coaches, authors, influencers, and entrepreneurs in just about any niche. Right now, Uscreen is used by creators in fitness, education, news, kids entertainment, and more. That includes Yoga with Adrian and Creator Now, just to name a couple. Uscreen is the platform for building a video membership site that is great for generating a sustainable income for professional creators. If you create video content for your audience, I highly recommend checking it out. If you're interested in learning more about Uscreen, visit uscreen.link slash J. That's U-S-C-R-E-E-N dot link slash J and let them know that I sent you. This episode is sponsored by Podcast Movement. For the past decade, Podcast Movement has organized the world's largest gathering of podcasters featuring thousands of attendees, hundreds of breakout sessions, panels, and workshops, plus the largest trade show in podcasting. Podcast Movement helps podcasters of all experience levels create, grow, and profit from their show. It's suitable for beginners, but you'll also have the opportunity to meet some of the biggest names in the industry. I've been to several Podcast Movement events, and not only is the programming incredible, but the culture and vibe are incredible too. It attracts thoughtful, empathetic, and collaborative people, which makes sense when you think about the medium of podcasting. Podcast Movement hosts two events per year. The first just wrapped up, but their flagship conference is happening August 19th through the 22nd in Washington, D.C. Attendees have the freedom to choose their own adventure across several different stages throughout the four-day event, not to mention dozens of amazing networking events, parties, and the expo hall floor. Tracks include podcast creation, video and live streaming, industry professional, plus several stages of curated programming from some of the top companies in podcasting. It's truly a unique event, and if you are a podcaster, I cannot recommend it enough. Right now, tickets are available at super-duper early bird pricing. And as a Creator Science listener, you can save $50 on top of that by visiting podcastmovement.com science. That's podcastmovement.com science. 
Welcome back. Alan had just told us that as a 24-year-old, the company he started had more than 100 employees. I think back to being 24, and I can't imagine having that type of responsibility. So I asked Alan what that felt like at the time. At times, it was the most wonderful, magical ride you could possibly imagine. So, you know, it was learning, it was earning, right? Because on paper, you're like seeing the value of your you know, company grow. It felt like you're building something significant. You know, you're building up people. Obviously, when you're growing that fast, the people that you work with are able to also grow really quickly because there's a lot of opportunities for growth. And so that feels very good. You know, there's there's a sense of self-efficacy and just, oh, wow, I can do something like this. Like, I have the ability to do it. And that's that's a permanent change, right? That's something where once you do it once and you know, oh, I can do this, you have a permanent mindset shift of, oh, I could always do this again. You might not work sometimes, but I know I can do it, which is a very liberating feeling, that feeling of self-efficacy. So those are sort of the positives. I think on the negatives, you know, there wasn't a lot of time for reflection or self-awareness yet. So I didn't have a lot of at-bats to know what I was good at or bad at. And so I was learning the things I was bad at by being bad at them. And so versus a lot of CEOs, I think, know when they you know, become a CEO or know when they take a new CEO job, they know here's the things I'm good at, here's the things I'm bad at. And they're good about bringing in other people to fulfill their weaknesses, which I think is a really important trait for leaders, whether you're a creative leader or a business leader, is knowing, okay, I'm bad at this and that's just fine. You know, what I'm going to do is I'm going to hire someone. Maybe it's you're really bad at product. And so you hire a really strong chief product officer early on, whatever it is. And I didn't know those things. And so I think I had a lot of blind spots and learning those blind spots was pretty like tough and painful because, you know, they're happening in real time and they're happening in a very concentrated way because we're growing so quickly. And so you're constantly discovering new blind spots or new weaknesses that otherwise you might've had, you know, two decades to, to learn about and figure out how to manage. How did you think about hiring? Did you hire people with industry experience or did you hire people that were kind of your age? I imagine in your position, I would have hired people like I knew and were my age and like <laughs> I felt like I could trust, but I probably would have wanted then in hindsight to hire somebody older. So what did that look like? I did a pretty good job of hiring people that weren't just you know very similar to me. I think in part because I had always been someone who, I always had a lot of people who had been there, done that around me. I really like learning from other people. And so, you know, I had a group of, I don't like the word mentor, but I use it because it's sort of functional. But I had a group of mentors who were very successful SaaS CEOs who I would turn to and give me advice on this stuff. And so I knew some of the things there that I need to be doing. And so, you know, I hired senior talent pretty early. There's areas where I didn't, and that was often where I made some of my biggest mistakes. But yeah, I think, you know, I did you know, throughout the process, hire people who were, you know, significantly older than me. I eventually hired a president who was, at the time I hired him, literally, you know, double my age. And, you know, that was, we sort of laugh about that. We're like, you know, very, very good friends now. But that was definitely a phenomenon, sort of funny. But you kind of learn to get over it because at the end of the day, you're the one, you know, metaphorically signing the checks. You're like, okay. And people know, like, there, it wasn't like a secret that I was young. So if you're, if you're opting in to work with me, it's kind of like, okay. Yeah, you know, you know what you're signing up for. So you're on this revenue rocket ship. Did you guys raise funding? Did you have to also perform to levels of the expectations? Of yeah, the so we raised $22 million in VC funding. So we did an A and a Series B. Did you feel equipped to go out and do that? Yeah, that was easy. 
on that. I mean, when you're growing really fast, raising money is super easy. When you're not growing fast, raising money is very hard, which I've also had to do. And that is very, very, very difficult. And so fundraising is a bit of a, when the going is good, it's very good. And when the going is bad, it's very bad. There's very few outcomes that are sort of in the middle. You're about to hear Alan use the word horizontal in an interesting way. So let me cut in here to give you some context. As companies grow, they often choose to grow either horizontally or vertically. And to give you an example, I'm using a Rode microphone right now. If Rode were to grow vertically, they would take on projects or acquire businesses that are at points in the value chain to their existing products, things before or after the microphone. Maybe they acquire the warehouse that manufactures the parts of their microphones. If they wanted to grow horizontally, they'd take on projects or acquire businesses that are serving their existing customer in a different way, like a podcast editing software or maybe podcast analytics. Companies expand horizontally when they believe customers want an all-in-one solution that serves a ton of needs instead of just one need very, very well. Okay, so after six years, TrackMaven merged with Skyward in 2018 to become an all-in-one content marketing platform. And with so much of its professional career wrapped up in TrackMaven up to that point, I wanted to know where Alan's headspace was around the time of the merger in 2018. So in 2018, we sort of had this realization that our product, which was an analytics for marketers, we had had this thesis that marketers would want to have a best of breed solution that was just that. And that thesis turned out to be wrong. Marketers wanted a very horizontal platform that analytics was a piece of the puzzle. And we had made the wrong, by we, I mean, I had made the wrong path in terms of we went this sort of best of breed route. And so we had this moment where we either had to raise money or we had to combine with a company that was more horizontal. And so we looked at a lot of options. We talked to a lot of different people. You know, we got term sheets for raising money, even though it was incredibly grueling. And eventually what we decided was that the best thing for the business, the customers, our investors, was to merge with a company that was in this sort of horizontal product position where they needed to have an analytics tool. And so we ended up merging Skyward, which is a really great content marketing platform. Just got Gartner, was in the new Gartner report as like one of the leaders, but they didn't have a strong analytics function yet. And so where we realized that we had this gap they had a gap and there's sort of a nice, perfect little match right there. How did that feel to take this baby that you had started six years ago <laughs> and built into this rocket ship and now you hit more turbulent waters? How did you feel as a still 20 something? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's definitely a weird feeling. There's a sense of identity when you're running a company and you have a job like that that's very integrated with the company. And so that can be sort of weird, but you know, it also, it was so much work. And so there's a sense on one dimension of relief and there's excitement, right? Because it's a new chapter. A merger is different than an acquisition in that, you know, it's, you know, there's still all of the sort of fruits of the labor are still in the sort of future value of the company. And so there's a sense of, okay, where could this go? Possibilities, all that kind of stuff. But it's definitely weird. I would say that, we talk more about this, but I would just say the last you know two years, a big thing for me has been, thinking about my identity and realizing that I actually like not having an identity that is overly structured to one thing. And I find that that can throw people off quite a bit, even though it's actually pretty healthy, I think, to have an identity that isn't, you know, just this is me, this is my job, that's who I am. Because as human beings, like we're much more diverse than that in our interests and thoughts and, you know, habits and all that sort of stuff. And all those things are meant to 
go away in some degree at some point. And like yourself and your sense of self is not. Correct. And so if you if you tie yourself to your company too much in terms of your identity, I think it can become really limiting and it can also make you make worse decisions for your business because you're also wrapping your sort of ego within the decisions you make for the company. After the merger, did you stick around with the company for some period of time? Yeah. So I left in January 2020. But you published a book in 2018. Mm-hmm. Before or after the merger, about the same time? Before, but just a few months before. Talk to me about where that came from. When did you decide you're going to write a book as you're building this SaaS company with 100 employees? Basically, in the marketing tech industry, sort of like every MarTech CEO writes a book. It's just like a thing. It's kind of funny. If you look at all the big MarTech companies, like they all did it. They all did it sort of around the Series A, Series B. So I knew in the back of my head, I was like, okay, I need to write a book at some point. Like it's part of the job. And then I would do a lot of speaking. And I gave this speech about sort of the mythologies around creativity. And, you know, because I was speaking to marketers who have a lot of feelings about whether or not they're creative and they can get sometimes a little tied up about it. And I would always argue that they are. I gave the speech about the myths of creativity and what creativity really is. And the speech really resonated with people in a way that was, took me aback a bit. And so I had casually mentioned to a friend who is a published author that I had this idea that maybe it could be a book. And he was like, yeah, that absolutely should be a book. And he was, you know, said, you should talk to my agent. And so he introduced me to his book agent. His book agent was like, yes, this should be a book. Like, I want to do it. And his book agent turned out to be this agent, Jim Levine, who is basically a super agent. He's Ray Dalio's agent. He's Eric Schmidt's agent. He's, you know, somehow my agent. And, <laughs> and so I didn't know that. I was just like, talking to the first person I talked to. And then so we sold the book to a you know major publisher. And when do you think that meeting was about if the book published in 2018? How early before that had you had that conversation? Probably sometime in mid 2015. And how long do you think you spent writing the book? I don't know. It was slow because I had a job, right? So it was like totally. a nights and weekends and occasional airplane ride kind of thing. Probably all in maybe 18 to 24 months. So 2015, about three years into the Track Maven journey, and you're starting to give this talk about creativity and how there's myths around it. And this is interesting to me because when I interact with people in the world around me, oftentimes people who identify as creative and people who identify as data nerds are not the same person. And it sounds like you did not have that struggle. You believed in both. Correct. I, I think that I think that they're essential. Now, on creative teams, sometimes creative teams can be comprised of people that are maybe more siloed in one or the other, but you need to have both. And I think a lot of people actually are both. I just think we often have these narrow definitions of data that are sort of silly. So, you know, a lot of screenwriters, for example, are very notes driven. So they, you know, send their their screenplay to people, they ask for feedback, they get feedback. Those notes are a form of data. It's more qualitative data, but it is definitely data. And so I think we have maybe this overly narrow image of quote unquote data that then makes creative people think, oh, that's not me. But in reality, every good creative should be data-driven in the sense that they incorporate feedback into their creative process. We can talk more about why it's important, but you know, there's lots of evidence that if you look at the most successful creatives, they are pretty aware about listening to their audience and getting external feedback, which is all a form of data. When we come back, Alan and I talk about how to give and receive useful feedback without making someone feel defensive. And then we dive into what he learned from the 25 creative greats that he interviewed for The Creative Curve, right after this. 
Welcome back to my conversation with Alan Gannett, the author of The Creative Curve. We were just talking about feedback. And the thing about feedback is a lot of people are pretty bad at receiving it because they take it so personally. But that feedback is such a critical input in the creative process. So I asked Alan how he learned to gracefully receive feedback. Yeah, I'd say I'm good at taking feedback in certain scenarios, situations, which is probably pretty human. We probably all have things that were better or worse at taking feedback on. For me, when it comes to there's in a creative process and people, other people have said you know this, but there's a initial phase where when you're working on something, the feedback is essential to the process where you are trying to get it right. And so feedback actually is part of the process. And once you frame it like that, it actually is annoying when people don't give you direct feedback because you're like, no, no, I need to know what's not working. And then there's a part of the creative process. And I think this nuance is why it trips some people up. And there's a part of the creative process where you're sort of 95% of the way done. You're sort of like maybe doing a little polishing, but then you really don't want feedback because you don't want to reopen the Pandora's <laughs> box. And I think that for a lot of people, both on both sides of that equation, it can be hard to know what to ask for and hard to know what to receive. And so I, whenever anyone asks me for feedback, I always ask, you know, what kind of feedback are you looking for? Because if it's just, hey, you know, you want me to tell you there's a couple little missed commas here, but overall I like it, or do you want me to give you like detailed structural critiques? And, you know, and sometimes people don't know what they want. I remember I had a friend who's writing a book and he asked me for feedback. I said, what kind of feedback do you want? He's like, I want you to be as tough as possible, be as harsh as you can. I was like, okay. And I have a lot of friends like that and I'll give them very tough feedback and they thrive on it. And he couldn't handle it. He got very defensive. He got kind of angry. It was weird. And he was just like really frustrated about it. And I told him, I was like, look, like you asked for this and I'm happy. Like, I don't need, like, there's no, like, I'm doing this just because I think you're smart enough to incorporate it and can make it better because you asked for it. And so I think with feedback, we have to understand where we are in a process, how to ask for it. And that I think makes it all feel a lot more comfortable if we're like, okay, I need this and I want this right now. I love that. And that's a great reminder because every time I hear this idea of the follow-up question, what type of feedback do you want? Such a good question because mm-hmm. even if they don't have an answer, at least it's forcing them to articulate. <laughs> they, they probably implicitly have some sort of answer, yeah. right? So if they, haven't, if they haven't thought in terms of how to answer that, do you have like categories of types of feedback that you would recommend people use? Yeah, usually it's, you know, do you want a sort of a gut reaction? Do you want structural feedback? Or do you just want sort of, you know, small polished type things? And so those would say probably the three sort of biggest things. Sometimes someone will just ask for you to read something, just give like a gut. Is this good? Is this bad? Is this on? Is this off? Where is this? You know, the feedback that I I think I'm pretty good at giving is detailed structural feedback, which I think is the feedback that often can be the most helpful, but is you have to be in the right mindset to receive because otherwise it can feel like, whoa, I'm being attacked, which obviously if you're asking for it is not the intent, but I think you have to be in the right mindset to receive it. And when I'm working on a book, my feedback readers are essential part of the process. So important. Those people who are willing to do that for me, it just means the world because I, I just think about my, my first book, The Grave Curve, and I think about the version of what it would have been like if I didn't have feedback readers and I, it would be terrible. Such a gift feedback is. If you just yeah. realize that not all of it is going to be exactly relevant, 
Like you need to be thankful for all of it and very careful about what you accept and move forward. And with. that's a reason for asking for, I think a lot of it, because my thing has always been with feedback readers is I try and have like three to five people read each chapter because what I find is that, you know, if one person's like, Hey, that joke is a little weird, but then it's, it might be worth ignoring it. But if three of the five or four of the five say, Hey, Alan, this joke, I don't really get why it's funny. I'm, I'm like, okay, that has to go. And this is where creativity kind of re-enters things too, right? Because if you receive a bunch of feedback and you get some that are conflicting, which you're invariably going to get, it's kind of on you then to intuit or, or understand like, what am I trying to accomplish? Who is this feedback coming from? And, and parse that. Because a lot of feedback that I hear is often justification of somebody's own decisions <laughs> or invented because they feel like they need to provide something or they're not helping you at all. Like sometimes people mm. will read something and you ask for feedback and they won't really have constructive material feedback, but they almost feel like they need to invent something <laughs> because you asked them. Yeah, I think that when it comes to giving and receiving feedback, you learn over time that there's certain people who are really good at it and certain people who you seek out and certain people when you're working on a project, you know, and a lot of times authors will form sort of informal cliques or networks of other authors that they trust for feedback and give good feedback and sort of give each other feedback. So I have author friends who we have very much a multi-directional, you know, always on sort of feedback thing. And I think it just comes down to learning who's good at that, who's willing to give it, you know, what does that, what does that look like? And once you're able to build that network and build that you know, community, it can be incredibly powerful. Now that the, the book is out, you, you had the time like writing, researching, and now getting years of feedback from readers even. How would you approach somebody who says, I'm not creative. I'm not really an ideas person. I can implement things, but I, I just don't have my own ideas. Where would you start with them? Well, I would start with the science just says they're wrong. So I talk about this in my book, but there's a ton of science that basically says that creative potential is incredibly well-spread. In fact, above a relatively average IQ threshold, we actually all have the same creative potential. Even below that IQ threshold, there's quite a bit of creative potential. And so the question that I'm really interested in that I tackle is, why is potential so widespread and achievement isn't? Right? That gap, that is what's really interesting to me. And to me, a huge part of that, which speaks exactly to your scenario, is that we are heavily conditioned, especially as children, that creativity is for a select few. And if we weren't given this sort of semi-divine magical ability, then we shouldn't even try. Add on to that, our sort of system of you know, capitalism has basically equated money with morality and traditionally creative fields have paid less, which is changing by the way. Now, a lot of times it's the opposite, but traditionally creative fields have paid less. And so there's also an element of, oh, it's bad or it's not like prestigious to be a creative because you'll make less money and money equals good. And so we have a lot of cultural conditioning that prevents people from even trying. And everything we know about deliberate practice tells us that you have to be working at something for an incredibly long amount of time to become truly exceptional at it. And so, you know, if you start when you're three or four, by the time you're 18, you've been doing something for 15 years versus if you try and start when you're 25, you're way behind because you're trying to not only undo that conditioning, but catch up with people who've been painting since they were four. At the risk of this getting kind of abstract. When you talk about creative potential and the science saying creative potential is widespread, 
How does science define creative potential? So there's basically tests that uh, academics have made that they've found are statistically valid and significant and repeatable and correlated to other measures that can measure creative potential. And so it's basically measuring creative ability on a very pure sense. And so there's different sorts of activities that they might do. For example, might be, hey, we give you these three objects, come up with you know ideas for how you can use these, for example. That would be an example. And then the number of ideas is equated to a creative potential score. There's other forms of measurements too, but basically in sociology and psychology, there's a bunch of different sort of creativity tests, so to speak. How does Alan Gannett, the author of Creative Curve, think about creativity? Like how would you define what is creative and what creative potential is? I like the definition from sociology, which is the ability to create things that are both novel and valuable. And I like that because I think a lot of people mistake creativity for productivity, which is just creating something, but that's actually not creative because when you think about like, if I painted a perfect replica of the Mona Lisa, that would be productive perhaps, that would definitely be skilled, but it would actually not be creative. And that's really interesting. There's this entire social context to creativity that is basically the most important part And we know that because if you think about Andy Warhol, who didn't even paint a lot of his own stuff, we definitely say he's creative. And so it's actually that element of timing and having that timing line up with where your audience is in an interesting way that I think is the most essential part of creativity. Also, for many people, the part that I think feels the most abstract or feels the most intangible, in reality, you can get better at it. But That is why, to me, the sociology definition is so great, that ability to create things that are both novel and valuable, because I think it hits really well that core idea of creativity, something more than just craft. Love that definition. And the question it brings to mind is, well, what makes something valuable? Does that have to be extrinsically valuable or is it intrinsically valuable, like valuable to me that I did that? To me, usually like value is in the eye of the beholder, right? Ding, ding, ding. So the whole idea of raise value is a social construct. And so in order for something to be valuable, people have to agree that it's valuable. Now, things can be valuable to a big group or a small group, right? So we've all decided that money is valuable. That's a big group. Now, there's also maybe you go to a conference, a really niche conference, and there's a hit session at the conference or a hit academic paper, we would say that is novel and valuable, but it's even though it's on a small scale. So whenever a group of people say that something's novel and valuable, that is when we define something as creative, which is why oftentimes things can sort of be deemed creative by, you know, small groups of fashionistas, right? But then also more mainstream audiences can also pick up something and sort of run with it. And so that's why it's actually interesting. Sociologists spend a lot of time studying trends and hits when they do work around creativity, because it's actually really interesting. Like if you think about pop music, a lot of times we would say contemporary pop music isn't creative. But if you go back in time, people said the same thing about the Beatles or Elvis when it was contemporary. But in actuality, look at Shakespeare, things that were wildly popular during the day are often the things we actually historically say are most creative because we can all say, oh, they were novel and valuable in their time. And so it is a both. It's not a one or the other. Correct. It's both at the same time. Because pure value is just you know, utility, right? Yeah. So that, that's a whole different phenomenon. And this explains why when, when people tell me they're not creative, I often point to like problem solving and how even just in your day-to-day life, you're often committing creative acts just to solve problems. Because if you have a problem, you need a solution. To find a solution, if it's a problem, you probably don't have a solution already. So finding a solution is novel. <laughs> it's also valuable because now you don't have the problem. Totally. So, 
So I like that definition. How else do you tell people, like, how do you get people out of their heads on this? Because they can hear that. They can hear you say, you are creative. You can do novel and valuable things, but how do you actually make them feel it? I often try and get people to think to when they lost that or what was the time people, like most people you find have a story of someone telling them, oh, you're not creative or, oh, you're not a good writer or, oh, you're not a good artist or, oh, you got a C minus on this creative writing paper. And most people have pretty strong memories of that. Yeah, I remember in one English class getting a bad grade on a paper and being really sort of like hit by it really hard. And, you know, we have these memories of things like that, that just because of, you know, child development, how all that stuff works is just, it imprints on us and we think these things. And, you know, I remember, you know, people making jokes about, oh, if you get an English degree, you'll become a barista in high school and things like this, that sort of, they, they, they rack around in your brain and they have an impact. I think once you ask people to start thinking back and start thinking about like, what were those stories that were told to you that maybe you internalize? Once you understand where it comes from, I think it makes it feel a lot more controllable because you're like, oh, this is just like because of that. Once something has a cause, I think it's much easier to prevent it from affecting you. You alluded to a minute ago that there are things people can do to kind of strengthen that creative muscle. What are some of those things? Oh, there's so many. One practice that I talk about a lot in the book that I think is really underrated is a lot of times in creativity, we obsess over talking about outputs. There's a lot of research advice on, you know, write a thousand words a day, do this, do that. Here's a good morning routine, blah, blah, blah. And in actuality, what I found in my my book, the first half is sort of a myth bust, myth busting. And the second half is I interviewed 25 living creative greats. These are Oscar winners, Tony Award winners, billionaires, Michelin star chefs, very eclectic set of folks. And one of the things I found that was so interesting was that to a person, they were all huge consumers of their craft. And so, so often when it comes to creativity, we talk a lot about doing and action. But actually, when you look at the most successful creatives, they're massive consumers of their craft. They consume, like jazz musicians listen to every single jazz record. Like writers consume tons and tons and tons of books. So why is this, right? Like why is that important? Well, it turns out there's two reasons. One is that how our brain works is our right hemisphere is where creative thought happens. And basically, it's always processing information, but it's slightly below our level of consciousness. And when it comes up with new and interesting permutations, this is like a gross oversimplification, it sort of pops into our consciousness. It's like, hey, I got an answer. And that little pop is what we talk about when we talk about like aha moments or light bulb moments, because it feels like it's from nowhere. But in reality, it's just that the underlying work was done subconsciously. And so when researchers look at, well, how do you actually have more aha moments? The thing which drives them is having more sort of dots to connect. If you consume more, you give your right hemisphere more material to work with, more material to put things together. So that's one. The second element is a lot of creativity, you know, I said before, is about timing. And what you find when it comes to timing is that the best ideas are actually not the ideas that are radically novel. They're ideas that are somewhat familiar and somewhat novel. Like I think about the iPad. The iPad was an iPhone without a phone. The iPhone was an iPod with a phone. The iPod was a better MP3 player. Like we don't actually like radically novel things. You know, West Side Story was Romeo and Juliet, but they're on the West Side. Star Wars was a Western in space. Harry Potter is the most straightforward orphan rising story of all time, but they're wizards. Insert whatever example here. 
And so as a result, because creativity is actually much more about taking something familiar and adding a novel twist to it, which we could spend three hours talking about, as a result, consumption is a hugely important thing because it allows you to know what is out there already, what will be familiar, what will be too familiar, what will be novel, what will be too novel. And so you have to really absorb sort of what your audience has sort of seen, been exposed to, if you want to create things for your audience, because you have to be able to create things that are at that right level of familiar enough to be safe and accessible, but novel enough to be intriguing and interesting and creative. I love that point. I, I heard a story a while back when Spotify created their Discover Weekly, which was like their big first innovation on helping you find new music. They had originally intended it to only be new music and mm. it took off immediately. What they found though, was that there was a bug and it was starting to give people music they had already listened to on Spotify. Mm. So they took that bug out and then engagement dropped. Huh. And they realized it was because it was too new. It was too new. People needed to know that, that they wanted to trust that Spotify knew them because Spotify was pulling in songs that they already knew. That, so I talk about in the book, there was a study that was done that was really interesting that looked at, they had people listen to hit songs. And what was interesting though about this is that it was actually done prospectively. I think that's the right term. But they had done this study and they had played all sorts of random songs off MySpace. And then a few years later, one of the researchers had heard one of the songs from the study on American Idol. And he was like, oh, that was one of the songs we did in that weird MySpace study. And he went back to it. And what they found is that the songs that later became hits activated the same portions of the brain in these fMRI scans. And the whole idea, which was really interesting, is that these songs have a certain familiarity that activates it. So it's not like there's some magical thing that our brain has somehow evolved to register, but rather there's certain things which give us that familiar sense, which is interesting. And so this is why, you know, musical taste and musical sort of preferences sort of shift in mass over time. And we talk about things like disco coming in and out of style or grunge rock coming in and out of style because eventually things become too familiar and people get bored of them. And so, it's really, really important to balance those two things. I love that Spotify story. I hadn't heard that before, but that's awesome. You telling me that pop punk is going to come back in? It already is. Machine Gun Kelly. <laughs> that's a good point. That's a good point. It's well, having a moment. Something you just touched on. I have to spend a little bit of time talking about this. If the best creators are consumers of their craft, where is the balance? Yeah. So I found that, well, there's two things. One is what do they consume? And the thing that's really important is that they... A, are consuming very narrowly. So this is not on Twitter. They're not consuming a little bit about a lot of things, but they're consuming a lot about a little. So that's one. Two is that they are consuming primary sources. So rather than reading synthesis about something or other people's abstraction, they're going and consuming primary source material about a specific thing. And this is important because since our right hemisphere is very good at synthesis, you want to allow it to do the work by itself. Now, Primary sources, by the way, can be, for example, talking to other people, like interviewing someone in a sort of casual sense of the word is a way to absorb that. But in the book, to answer your question with more sort of specificity, what I found was that the most successful creatives spent about three to four hours of their days consuming content in their niche. So I call this a 20% principle because when you write a book like this, you have to come up with cute names for things. And it's about 20% of your waking hours. I was sort of shocked by that because it's a lot of time. It is. It's a lot of time. I think that for a lot of people, one of the issues is we just don't have the time to do that. Now, the thing is, obviously, we don't all have the aspiration to win an Oscar or win a Tony. We maybe just want to be a bit more creative. So even if we can't spend three or four hours, maybe we can spend an hour a day. But 
That is where I think a lot of corporate creativity gets into trouble because we don't give people time for the research phase of research and development, even though that input is so important. We have all this science, we have all this practice, we have all this history where we know that that input is so important to creative discovery. Was this known by these people where it was like actually directing their behavior? They knew to be this, they needed some to dedicate them, this time or was it compulsive? Yeah, some of them. So some of the people I interviewed talk very specifically about, you know, I interviewed Ted Sarandos, who's now co-CEO of Netflix. But when I interviewed him, he was chief content officer. He'd been that for maybe 17 years. And he told me about, A, he started his career as a clerk at a video store who decided he was going to watch every single video in the store. And then he continued to this day, he watches you know, three to four hours of film and television every single day. And he knows, he credits that with this part of his success. He called it, you know, he called it like, I think it was a film school and MBA all wrapped up into one, that sort of intense consumption. And, you know, I talked to other people, for example, talked to Andrew, uh, Andrew Sarkin, who is the Squawk Box host, but he's also the creator of Billions. He wrote the book, Too Big to Fail. You know, he's been successful in multiple different creative pathways, which I think is kind of cool. He talks about whenever he sort of is learning a new format, what he does, he goes and consumes a lot of that format. And he sort of studies it and sees like, what is the structure? What is the patterns? What's the sort of outline of what good looks like? And that's what allows him to create. And so, yeah, some people are very conscious of it. Other people, you know, would sort of casually mention it to me or have asked them, oh, how much do you read? They'd be like, oh, you know, probably like three hours a day. But it hadn't really registered that necessarily was part of their process. So it just depends on the person. How did you land these interviews? And what they I look like? started with cold emails. And so like Ted Sarandos, I cold emailed. And then I also had some friends of friends. And it sort of snowballed where once I got the agent, I was able to sort of use that as social proof. Sure. And then once I got the first few interviews, I was able to use those names as social proof. Once I got the publisher, I was able to sort of use that as social proof. And so by the end, it became much easier to get the interviews, but it was sort of, a, I would call it a you know, credibility snowball sort of. Totally. Works in podcasting too. Um, <laughs> sure. how, how much time were you spending with them generally? It depends. Some people I interviewed once for 45 minutes and never again. Most people I probably interviewed twice. So maybe two hours. It depended on the person and sort of how they, how I decided I wanted them to fit into the book. But people were really kind and gracious about spending their time with me, which was really nice. I mean, I think also when you're writing a book on like creative genius, it's sort of a flattering thing to totally, you know. Okay, last question, because I know we got to wrap up here. You are a data nerd. You study all of this stuff. So you, after having learned all of this and now away from the SaaS company, how is this informing how you're going to spend your time as a creative moving forward? Yeah, so I'm working on a lot of different projects right now. And, you know, I launched a podcast and I historically have not been a huge podcast person. So before we launched the podcast, I listened to a ton of podcasts and just trying to get a sense of what works, what doesn't work, what's familiar, what's different. And that was part of how we landed on our format, which is it's a call and advice show for creators. And basically what I saw was, you know, there's a lot of really great interview shows. So I don't really feel like there's space for more of them. Like, you know, there's this show, there's a lot of them. And so I was like, I don't think the world needs another interview show. People have done that better than I could. And so the idea was call and advice shows are really fun. They're really popular on traditional radio, but they're not as popular on podcasts. And there's all this talk about the creator economy and the creative class, but there's not really an advice show for them. And so that was where the idea sort of came together. But that was an example of where part of what I liked about it 
was it's a challenge. Like I haven't done a podcast before and I like learning new mediums or formats because I find it intellectually really fun to be able to like think backwards about like how to do this right, what would it take and piece those pieces of the puzzle together. What about your own business model? Like, do you want to go back to a SaaS someday or do you want to be an independent creator with with podcasts and maybe more books? I do a bunch of things now. So I do a lot of startup investing. You know, I'm working on a second book. So yeah, I mean, I think as of right now, the plan is have a portfolio of projects and, you know, I do a lot of speaking and sort of content. You know, running a company is a lot of work. It's very intense. So maybe one day, not right now though. (laughs) Man, I cannot overstate how much I enjoyed hearing about the consumption habits of the creative greats that Alan interviewed for The Creative Curve. Over the last year or so, I found myself consuming more and more creative primary sources, especially film and television, and watching them through the lens of a producer. Every decision you see in a scene was someone's intentional decision, and by watching the work of great directors and producers, you start to form opinions on why they made those decisions. And it makes sense that our brains are synthesizing this information to help us make connections between what is novel but not too novel so that we can put our own spin on things while also protecting the connection other people can feel to it. You can of course pick up Alan's book, The Creative Curve at thecreativecurve.com and you can follow the latest from Alan on Twitter or Instagram at Alan. Thanks to Alan for being on the show. Thank you to Emily Klaus for making the artwork for this episode. Thanks to Nathan Todd Hunter for mixing the show and Brian Skeel for creating our music. If you like this episode, you can tweet at jklaus and let me know. And if you really want to say thank you, please, please, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next week. Sonic Universe.